Well, thanks for joining us again this week for our Confident in Christ podcast. We're talking all month long about the Bible. And today we want to talk a little more about where did we get our Bible, the 66 books. What about other books? What about other quote-unquote Bibles? And uh, some of those kinds of discussions. Kurt, what are some of the things that, that you've prepared for us to discuss today? You bet. As I look through the subject and really trying to prepare a, a little bit of historical background for the Bible, I was surprised at several points of information. I guess that's kind of where I think it's healthy to start, especially if somebody's not very familiar with the Bible. Where did it come from? In talking about it, all Bibles have 66 books. There's uh, 39 Old Testament books and 27 uh, New Testament books. The Old Testament books were uh, written around 1450 B.C., well, the whole Bible, up through about 90 A.D., uh, where differences come in. Uh, the Protestant, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Ethiopian, all those Bibles have that number of books. The difference all comes in in the Old Testament books. The 39 books that we have in a Protestant Bible are all uh, originally uh, written in either Hebrew or Aramaic, and they're written from about 1450 to 400 B.C. That's where our Old Testament quits. The difference comes in books that were written from about 300 B.C. up through the time of Christ. The Catholic Bibles add about 11 books to the Old Testament during that period. The Greek Orthodox Church adds about three more, and the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox adds about four more Old Testament books. They're called uh, the apocryphal writing. Most of these books have a lot of history. One of the reasons during the Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther wanted to really look at, at uh, getting that apocryphal writings out of the Old Testament was it provided some foundation for what were really questionable practices that were happening in the Catholic Church at the time of the Protestant Reformation. I had read that Jerome, who did the Latin Vulgate, yeah. He also translated the Apocrypha into Latin, but he explicitly said these are not canonical books. They don't belong in the Bible. He called them books of the church. That's right. And so he did translate them. As he said, these are these are interesting books that the church could read and maybe get something out of, but they're not the inspired scripture. And so that's important. I think one of the oh, things oh. you're talking about is there's there's other history books that are great but they're not the inspired word of God. And that, that they don't carry the, the same weight. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that Jerome did there, around the late 300s, there was the first effort to put the Bible together, to actually gather up the texts of the Bible and put those into what was started about 200 AD being called the New Testament. And uh, St. Jerome was Catholic at the time, he knew Hebrew, he knew Aramaic, and he knew Latin and Greek. And he and a group of biblical scholars were commissioned basically to assemble the inspired works of God. And so when the Bible was first assembled, as you say, uh, Sean, it didn't have the apocryphal books. One of the interesting things about those books is in the New Testament, there's 250 approximately direct quotes and about a thousand partial quotes of books in the Old Testament. And none of those quotes are in these apocryphal books. They're never mentioned in the New Testament. And there's no disagreement about the books in the New Testament. 
And so when St. Jerome translated the Bible, he originally translated all of the Old and New Testaments into Latin. That group of priests was the first ones to do that. And their original, I think it was about 360 or so, didn't have the apocryphal books, but they were directed about 10 years later to go ahead and translate those apocryphal books and add them to it. Those are the ones that Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation came back and later said those shouldn't be part of our Bible. And uh, they had to make decisions about what was inspired books and what was not. And so that first group that decided what to include and not to include in the New Testament really had three main rules that they were using as they went through the scripture. These were all being commonly preached in church, so there really wasn't a lot of question for most of the text. But the rules that they felt like were solid rules were, number one, they needed to be eyewitness accounts. The books needed to be either person writing was an interviewer like Luke or uh, had firsthand experience like Paul or was one of the uh, apostles. The second rule was it had to be a first century writing, somebody who was there. There were a group of second and third century books that were cropping up that were just like histories today. There's new books on the history of the Revolutionary War. Well, that was 300 years ago. So you get that kind of writing and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's putting today's values on yesterday's event. So they wanted it to be a, a first century writing and they couldn't be in conflict. Uh, it had to be in concert with the rest of Christian doctrine uh, that the rest of the books pointed out. And so they kind of use those three criteria. That's where we have our 27 books of the New Testament today. You know, even in Jesus's day, you had the Gnostics. You had some things that were out there, and they're actually addressed in the New Testament. So there, there were efforts not in alignment with Christian doctrine at the time of the original writings, and they're talked about in the original writings. And so, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, disagreement in those 27 books. There, there, there's not been a lot of argument about those books. But I did have a quick note, and something that I found interesting is if you use those criteria, you know, that's that's one of the reasons that we, we don't seriously talk about the Book of Mormon in the Christian faith, is it really doesn't meet any of those criteria. It was written in 1836. Well, it doesn't, you know, it's not firsthand, it's not author, and it's a lot of contradictory doctrine uh, to the Bible. And so as a Christian who believes in the Bible, that book is really not in alignment with uh, any of the criteria of the time and fits more of those things that were written afterwards that is non-inspired text. The other thing, you know, people don't think about, St. Jerome translated the Bible from a variety of different language into Latin. So the first fully Latin Bible came out about 400 AD. And of course it was handwritten, no printing presses or anything like that. The next translation was Wycliffe started it and Kirby finished it in 1388. So you went about a thousand years. The nice thing about a Latin translation is it's pretty consistent. Latin language did not change a lot through that period. So that's one of the reasons we have a lot of consistent uh, copies. And then, uh, of course, the King James Bible, that's the one that Jesus used. He, uh, <laughs> he, uh, that came out about 1600. Uh, and people don't think about it, but the Bible has about 775,000 words that are translated from four different languages uh, from the original text. And that's if you're coming to English. 
Well, it's translated to Spanish and Portuguese and every other language. There's a, there's about 5,000 languages in the world. So today there's about 50 main Bible translations into English. And the uh, most accurate translations go to the oldest available text, which most of that original text is gone. But we do have a healthy set of copies that we have high level of confidence in as being an exacting copy of the original. One of the interesting things that I, I heard is in the Hebrew language, there's no quotation marks. So that's why you see, thus saith the Lord, because they're being very specific. And the Bible, the original authors, there's about 44 authors, agreed on authors. And it was convention at the time not to talk about yourself in most of these books. That was not an unusual thing to not talk about yourself in that book. And so uh, the authorship sometimes on some of these books is, is unknown. But we think there's about 44 authors that happened over about 1,400 years. That's a pretty amazing set of data that's there. And when you're translating that data, there's about three basic ways that Bibles generally get translated. Formal equivalence, which is a word for word, which would be just like you described. You would say if the original text talked about snow, you would talk about snow. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's the formal equivalent. It, it's not about the meaning. It's just a word for word translation. Functional equivalent as an example of that, like King James Bible, New American Standard Bible, those would be formal equivalents. Functional equipment is where you translate it thought for thought, where you're trying to communicate uh, more about the message. That would be uh, the NIT or the NIV are considered to be those functional equipment, equivalent. And then optimal uh, equivalents, which is a little bit of a combination. It's formal everywhere it can be, but then uh, functional when it doesn't have a common experience in today's uh, society. That would be like the Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible. And there's paraphrased Bible. That's the one I grew up reading, which was the Living Bible. It, it was uh, uh, new, and that translates meaning more than a, any kind of a translation. So you, you've kind of got these different methods of translating from the original language. I, I don't know which one in y'all's experience, what Bibles do we all use here at the table? You said you had four copies, uh, four different uh, translations at home. Uh, I have... This is a Christian Standard Bible, and then I use NLT, and then I use U version. They have a compare option, and it gives you any kind you want to compare it to. So I use all those. I use uh, NASB and ESV. I preach out a New American Standard because it is a word for word. I feel like it's faithful, it's readable. I cut my teeth biblically, really, on the King James. There are some things I memorized, and I think there's a beauty to it. I'll be honest, that and the New King James, I struggle just in reading them and it puts up for me so many hurdles that sidetrack me that I, I tend to not go there. I also would recommend the Logos Bible software. You can get a pretty cheap version of it and it's really cool. You can go whatever translation you've got, bring it up on your screen, you right click on a word and it'll take you to the original language and you, it's just got so many things at your fingertips. I use the NIV most of the time. That's what I grew up on. That's the verses. But I've even noticed that the NIV I grew up on is different than the NIV that's now. Because what was there an 80 version? And the, I don't remember. It's the TNIV, today's NIV. And they did the gender inclusive language and all of that. So scrub some of the sonship language and he. 
and all that. Well, so. I even had to like you know look at what co- what the copyright date on the NIV mm-hmm. was because it was different than I memorized it from the other. Because even like the so. Lord's Prayer and how we memorized that in basketball was different, and I can't find you know it's like I don't remember even what that version is. I use the NLT, I use the King James version. I kind of like going back to that. And there's another version, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know what it is, but it's different than those three. Um, but I like comparing. I like going through them all and seeing, okay, well, what did this say? And how did that give me more insight into what the scripture said? It's a, you know, this question is a pretty valid question in today's society. There's a real effort to change our language and how we talk to each other. And, and so it is a question that I don't pretend to have all the right answers on that. And then, you know, when we're translating old culture and our culture is, is shifting, you know, how much of that is appropriate and how much of that is inappropriate. The Bible had to communicate in its day to the people of that day. It, was, it wasn't written for 3,000 years in the, in the future. I mean, uh, you know, they, they had to communicate to the people that were in front of them in a, in a way that they would understand. And so it's a, it, it is a interesting discussion and, and I think appropriate for review and awareness we want to translate, but then again, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we, we can't translate ourselves out of meaning, what the intent was. And I think you do have to go back and look at what the intent was of the day. And you can't walk away from that, even though in today's culture, some of that might make us uncomfortable in, the, in some of the things that were presented and said. And that's, that's just the way it was. I know that was a little bit of dry history, but you know, I hope putting that context on it, maybe if people aren't familiar with the Bible other than, the, you know, next to Grimm's fairy tales or something, that it's held together a group of people for thousands of years. And you just think of any other book in the world that does that, that holds that uh, group of people because of their faith in this book. And I do think the more you look at it, particularly in light of all the other books of the world, you appreciate just how unique this is, and the more it becomes apparent that it really is God's revelation about himself to man. And and then through studying that revelation, I think that's where God really deals with each of us in such a personal way and uses this, this, this book of history and book of awareness and book about Christ and that whole narrative. He uses this whole narrative to, to tell you what this whole thing is for, what this creation is all about. It, it tells his story. I just kind of enjoyed learning a little more about the history. And then I would like to put a plug in, though. I think for people who think the Bible is not credible, to me, one of the books that has really impacted me on the credibility scale is a book that's called Case for Christ. And it was written by a, an atheist, a, a young man who was a professed uh, atheist, and had no real Christian or religious bent and set out to, as a journalist, set out to prove the Bible wasn't real, that Christ wasn't real. And through the course of all that effort, became a Christian. And so anybody who's seriously looking, an honest uh, journey, I would encourage you to read that account because he does a real good job of laying out how unreasonable it is to assume the Bible's not real. It goes through several things that you would do as a typical journalist. And at the end of that, himself realized he had proven to himself the Bible is real and, and became a Christian because of that. Well, it's certainly a privilege that God has 
superintended a process and these use flawed men and women in the process if we believe that as jesus says the holy spirit will guide you in the words that i've said he'll bring to your remembrance I, i just believe that god has worked and orchestrated and it's been a messy process at some points and the church has had battles about and debates about but i think that's how we grow is we come up against a struggle and, and the Lord guides us. But it's a privilege to have the Word of God. I appreciate, Kurt, all the research you did to bring some of those things to light for us. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, God's Word. And so I hope you'll tune in to the Confident in Christ podcast. Thanks for being with us today.